This is from uh, 1 Corinthians um, chapter 11, 17 through 34. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, but because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it, believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or you despise the church of God and humiliate, humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I receive from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let the person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. This is the word of the Lord. Please take your seats. Take this back. My name is Jim. I'm one of the uh, elders here. Let me uh, pray for us, and we'll get into the passage. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, uh, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, you love us and that you bring these words to us for our consideration. Open our hearts now as we hear... Uh, what you have to say and uh, speak to us. In Christ's name, amen. So, full confession here, I'm not a football fan. I, I realize in this church that's a bit of an oddity, but you know, we'll just, you'll just have to deal with that level of diversity. But I notice as I watch other football fans that there's a couple things happen with being a fan of a football team. One is you identify with that team. You wear a jersey, you wear the colors of the Seahawks, you wear the number 12. Same goes for the Mariners. And uh, I noticed too that when you identify enough that when the Seahawks are doing great, week after week, you guys are really pleasant to be around. <laughs> and when they're not doing so good, well, we won't go there. And. Not that I have things I'm a fan of as well. I, I just, just doesn't have to be football. Um, but I also noticed that, that and I, I, like I say, I do this in other, my, other, my own areas, when we identify with a team, we're identifying with them because they're winning. And that's what we identify with. 
and that's, um, uh, that's the, you know, we talk about image bearing, that's the image we want the Seahawks to bear. That's what we want them to be proclaiming in their actions, that they're winners, and we want to identify with that. Well, um, we've talked about this over the last couple of Sundays, how we, as Christians, are image bearers of God. We talked about it with gender, we've talked about it with identity. We are image bearers of God, and that, that theme continues even today. Now, what's happened is, uh, again, we were created in the image of God, but sin has distorted that. But we also see that Jesus is restoring that image as he works in us. We see this as individuals, and we also see it corporately when we, as individuals, gather together in a place like today, in a place like this today. And back to the Seahawks, you know, you might have a favorite um, player on the Seahawks that you really identify with, but if they started a game and there was the entire opposing team on one side when the game started and just your favorite player on the other side, I don't think they'd win. At least that's my understanding of football. There's something about when they come together as a team, when they're all following the, uh, you know, the directions of the coaches, when they're all working together, that that image as victorious can come out, right? I'm not overstating on football, am I? So um, we see that in the church as well. There's more than just the fact that we are image bearers individually. It's when we come together and gather in a place like we do here on Sunday morning, like we do during the week at our home gatherings when we come together, there's an image of God that we are portraying corporately, individually when we're out on our own, corporately when we're together. And that's what's at issue in this passage. When Paul is um, looking at this church, his comment basically is, you call this a church? It's a confrontation of what they're doing when they're together. In particular, how they take the Lord's Supper or the communion meal. Now, what we see in the passage is that there's drunkenness, hunger, and division. The gathering was for the worse, not the better. That's what it says in verse 17. The visions at the gathering are meant to express unity. Verse 18. Now, he makes this comment. He says, now some of these factions, as the word he uses, are okay. And what he means there is that uh, in a typical church, sometimes you get a division between one side that wants to follow the Bible and one that wants to contest it in some way. And that kind of division, although painful, and I've been through some of those, although painful, that's necessary so that the rest of the church can identify who is approved, is the word he used, and what he means is those who actually are following the scripture. Those are the ones that you need to follow. So that kind of division is okay, but that's not what's happening here. They're having divisions, not because of the Bible, they're having divisions because of um, economic and social status. And that, Paul says, is not good. It's not good. Now you see in verse 22, some went hungry at the meals while others got drunk. 
And Paul's comment to this is, says, you're not eating the Lord's Supper. That's what you're calling it, but that's what, not what it is. You're just having a private party. Not that there's anything wrong with parties, but when you come together and you call it the Lord's Supper, it needs to be the Lord's Supper, not a private party. Now, the image displayed, again, was a private party, but that's not the image that Jesus wants displayed when the church gathers and when they do, in particular, this, this particular ceremony called the Last Supper. I want to give you a little background on, on the church, a little historical background on what was going on at the time. Back in the first century, churches met in private homes. They didn't have, didn't have buildings like we did. And uh, you typically met in a large house, which meant you had to have somebody in the, in the church that was wealthy enough to afford a large house. And because um, you'd have a crowd of people, probably not this big, but you'd have several dozen in some cases. And in these typical Greek Roman houses, you would have a dining area which could hold eight, nine, 10, 12 people you know, for typical family dining type functions. And then oftentimes connected to that was the atrium, a larger open space, uh, you know, it had, had some covered area, it was open. And what the church would do is they would gather in these spaces and so it would kind of spill out from the dining room out into the atrium. They would fill up the space because that was all the space they had and that's where everybody gathered. And these gatherings were also a mixture. They were a mixture of wealthy, and poor believers. So you had this economic strata uh, existing within, within, this, within this house. You had privileged and underclass. You had men and women, and you had mixed, you had ethnic diversity, Jews and Greeks, for example. So that all came together in one, one of these church gatherings. Now the other thing that was going on at the time is there was a famine in the land. In that area of, of um, where Corinth was situated, there was a famine. You know, and that wasn't uncommon because we didn't ha they didn't have the, the agricultural and, and distribution systems that we have today. So if one region had some uh, you know, weather phenomenon or crop failure or whatever, that region went hungry because you could only take the food as far as you could carry it on foot. Now what happens, often happens, and you see this various places in the New Testament, the church, okay, in these circumstances, they would pool their resources so that all believers could be fed at this gathering. So the gathering included a full meal. We don't typically do that here today. Some of you do it at your home gatherings. But they included a full meal. And then part of that meal was the ceremony of communion. Which was, and this was a common tradition amongst the house churches in, uh, in the first century. Now, Paul has two issues that he addresses here, classism and selfishness. Those are the underlying heart issues that he's, that he's reacted to. And the way this worked in Corinth is that they would have a gathering, but the privileged and the wealthy, who didn't have to work during the day, they could show up early. And they could start eating when they showed up, and often did. Now, the working class, they couldn't show up till they got off work. And so they would come, and most of the good food was gone, if not all of it, the, the better food. So they might have some. And the inner room was full of the wealthy and the privileged, 
partying, getting drunk, some of them, because they'd been there that long. And, you know, the poor and the, and the, and the, and the working class, they'd fill in in, in the atrium, and so you ended up with this division, a socioeconomical and a cultural division between these classes of people. Paul says what you're doing because the needy brethren among you, the Christians, are going hungry. The fact that that is happening, he says, Corinth, you despise the church. Ooh, that's, that's, that stings. That stings. But, um, and again, it's rooted in this uh, um, cultural classism, and classism, which in the, at the time in the culture was normal. You did have the stratification of the privileged few and the poor many. That was normal in that culture. And so the, the church is basically just going along with the culture and how they conducted this love feast, as it's called, this celebration of the, of the, of the um, communion when they got together. When you humiliate the poor, you despise the church. So to address this, Paul talks about the Last Supper. This was the last time that Jesus gathered with his 12 disciples and had a meal. And this is communion, what we call communion, the Last Supper. And this is how it's supposed to be done. This is how it's supposed to look. This is the message that it's supposed to proclaim. And this pattern, according to Paul, he received this directly from Jesus. So it came with some authority when he, when he talked about this. Now, in particular, Paul refers to the Last Supper as the night when Jesus was betrayed. So wording this way puts the focus on that betrayal, and in particular, one individual of the Twelve, which was Judas, the man who actually did betray Jesus to the Romans. Now, <clears throat> that makes it really strong and powerful as a message to convey to the church, but it also presents a potential for misunderstanding uh, because of what happened to Judas. So I'm going to go into that a little bit and explain it. Paul also says, we proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. This is image-bearing as the church. When we celebrate communion, we proclaim the Lord's death. Who are we proclaiming it to? Well, us, obviously, because we can see each other. But as we've alluded to before, there is a metaphysical world. There is a spiritual realm where God exists, where the angels exist that we don't see, demons, cherubim. I mean, there's just this whole list of things, and including departed saints, people that have already died, uh, that are believers. They are witnessing all that goes on in this physical world that we see. So when we proclaim the Lord's death, even though we only see the people in the room observing us, there are many more. The Bible hints at this in a number of places. doesn't really go into detail, but that, that just happens to be true. Now, when the disciples got together on that last night, just Jesus and the twelve, they had a dinner together, a full meal. All could eat and drink as one. They were sharing. They were sharing bread. They were sharing wine. There was unity and equality in that room, even to the point that... Um, Jesus was demonstrating uh, that he was actually lower than them by becoming like a servant would in a household in those days and washing all their feet. 
he was demonstrating again this unity and equality that was, um, well, nobody was any more important than anyone else. He was destroying this whole idea of classism right there in front of their eyes. And then Jesus gave, well, I mean, he talked a lot during that time. We see a lot of the, the, what's, what is said in the Gospel of John. But the accounts in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he gives a very short sermon. Very short. I mean, you'd be out of here by now if I was this short. <laughs> he described his coming sacrifice using bread and wine to, as illustrations. And he said something that, that, is, that is so important to understand, which I will get into. And then he added the statement, one of you will betray me. Okay, you just said that to 12 people. One of you would betray me. And Jesus knew who that was. He knew it was Judas. So why did he say it to all 12? Why didn't he just go to Judas and say, look, man, I know what you're going to do. No, he said, one of you will betray me. This is, this is classic sermon where you expose a truth to everyone that is listening and is applicable to all. It might be applicable to the behavior of some, but it is still applicable to all. And that's why, we, that's why we sermonize today. That's why we do it this way. All those disciples, every one of them, were capable of betrayal. And they all, therefore, needed to examine their own selves. Now, they were also being prepared for events that would follow this meal, which was, well, one would betray, that was Judas. All of them would scatter, they would abandon him. And Peter would even deny Jesus three times. So I think, too, Jesus just preparing them, yeah, it's, it's don't be puffed up, don't be conceited. You're going to, you're going to experience something really heavy. And the message here, I think, is we, we, we don't want to fall into the deception that the sermon really is for the person sitting next to us or on this side or for somebody else. The sermon is for everybody that hears. Now, the disciples all knew they were capable of, a, of, of individually betrayal. And so that's why they asked the right question. And you see the scripture in those, in those accounts say, one after another, they asked Jesus, is it I? Lord, is it I? Lord, is it I? It's like they went around the room. They had got the message. They did what the proper thing was with self-examination, and they began asking the right questions because they knew they were capable. Now Judas, by contrast, he didn't self-examinate, or self-examine. I mean, he, he asked the question, but I don't think it reflected an examination of his heart because even at that time, if you look at what Judas's behavior had been up to the time of this gathering at this meal, he had already gone to the authorities. He had already agreed with them to turn Jesus in. They had planned together exactly how they were going to do it. And he, he had even accepted money from them to do this betrayal. He was about, and he was about at this time when he, he had this interaction with Jesus, he was about to leave the meal to go put his plan into motion. So he was given the chance to repent, but instead he passively lied. 
He says, well, Lord, is it me? You wonder what went on through his head. You wonder what went on through his head. He had done all this stuff. Jesus says, when are you going to betray me? And he's given the chance to respond. He missed his opportunity. Now, what's important here, see, since Paul has, talking to the Corinthian church, has mentioned the... um, He's using the communion as an example, and he's particularly focused on betrayal. We have to talk a little bit about the difference between Judas and the Corinthian church. We have to also differentiate between judgment and discipline. Otherwise, we can misinterpret this passage and not really get the full sense of what Paul is trying to say. So let's clarify, judgment and discipline. You see it in verse 29 through 32. And specifically, he says, Judgment of self. This is used here in this passage about self-examination. It's not about sentencing one to eternal punishment to hell. It's a different sense of this. It's the same word, but it's a different sense used in this context. This comes from verse 32, where he says, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. See, I think Paul knew, I'm going to use this example, and I'm going to talk about the betrayal, And those believers are going to think, am I Judas? It's a different circumstance. Judgment by the Lord in this context is about the individual believer needing discipline from the Lord to correct, not judgment to condemnation. The Lord gives the believer plenty of opportunity, you know, in our our normal lives to face, and, sorry, the Lord gives the believer plenty of opportunity to confess first. If the believer holds back, the believer will face some sort of discipline from the Lord. Judas was taking, okay, so was Judas taking communion in an unworthy manner? Yes. Was he judged? Yes. Right then and there by Jesus. Did he die? Yes. That happened a few hours later. Was he going to hell? Yes. Is this going to be the result for the believers in Corinth at the church there? No. And this is why. Judas' circumstances are different from the church at Corinth. Judas, I contend, was not a believer. The Corinthians are believers. You see that in the opening address to the Corinthian church in the, in the letter of 1 Corinthians. That's the difference, and that's a significant difference. And again... You look at this passage, if you read into Judas, because Paul uses it to a a bunch of Christians, don't read into it that I'm like Judas because I'm an unbeliever. Well, unless you are, I guess. Um, Paul adds a clarification about judgment and discipline in verse 32, so that the Corinthians don't confuse Jesus' death about, confuse Jesus' death. The Corinthians don't confuse Judas's death uh, and condemnation with what the Lord does with believers. The Lord disciplines believers. He condemned Judas. That's the difference. Believers are judged and face discipline. Judas was judged, died, and ended up in hell. But Paul does say, you know, sometimes for believers, that discipline can end up in death. 
Don't have time to go into it, but that's what the scripture is saying. That's why some of you are sick and some of you are died. He's actually referring to physical death. So a couple key con concepts about communion. Um, now there's a verse in the, in the book of Galatians. I suggest you all memorize this. Galatians 2.20. Write it down if you don't have it. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Commit it to memory. I memorized this verse 40-some-odd years ago. And I still feast over that, what I learned from that. And sometimes I weep over what I learned from that. But that verse has been um, uh, a cornerstone in my understanding of what the gospel is. And it continues to do that. Even, even this last week, it instructs me on what this means. And I contend that that concept, Galatians 2.20, and I'll quote it for you, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself up for me. <laughs> I have been crucified with Christ, and it is Christ who lives in me. I contend that concept, in Christ and Christ in me, is critical. It's key to understanding salvation, communion, confession, sanctification, all those big theological terms. That's how you understand those things. And it, it, it illuminates how we are to be image bearers, this thing that we've talked about, being image bearers of Christ, both individually and corporately when we come together. Christ is in us, we are in Christ. Jesus so utterly identified with us that his body broken enables us to be whole and unified. His blood that is spilled becomes our salvation. This is how substitutionary atonement works. That's the principle. Christ died in our place. And Paul says it right there. You know, it, it wasn't just an act that he's, that he's um, referring to. He, he said, Paul says, I was crucified with Christ. Paul wasn't actually crucified physically, but yes, he was crucified as far as God was concerned with Christ. Now, this is the other side of the coin of bearing his image. We identify with Jesus and bear his image. We should therefore look like him. It's two sides of the same coin. Now, Paul uses this principle in the negative sense in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. That's the place where he speaks of sexual immorality. And the point is, an individual who has sex with a prostitute, for example, because in sex, the two become one, you join somebody when you have sex with them. <laughs> the individual who has sex with a prostitute is joining Jesus to that prostitute. Now, when somebody does that, a believer, you know, they might rent out a private hotel room but they might as well put a banner across the front of that hotel that says, Jesus is screwing a whore. That's what's happening. That's what's being proclaimed as an individual. 
See, when we sin, we drag Jesus with us. It's not just something that I do off over there and come back here and, okay, now I'm in the presence of Jesus, I need to confess. No, he was in it with me when I sin, when I disobey. See, God became a man in Jesus. We call that the incarnation. And Jesus is the image of the invisible God. That's what the scripture declares. That's what that three years, 2,000 years ago was all about. He became a man and he walked among us. The incarnation. Now, he was crucified, died, spent three days in the grave, was resurrected, but then eventually he ascended up into heaven. He became invisible again. Well, if he's invisible, how do we see what he is? The church, the Holy Spirit indwells us individually and is with us when we gather. This is how the image of who Christ is is portrayed to the rest of the world. This is how we bear that image. So Jesus was a prototype, as it were, of, of what eventually the church was supposed to do. Now, the church does it imperfectly. And, and, and some would say hardly does it at all. But that's our job to bear the image of who God is, both individually and when we gather, like this morning. What we do as a church proclaims a message about who God is. That happens when Taproot Church joins in Transform Burian, feeding the poor one Sunday a month. We are demonstrating what God is like to people. We are proclaiming simply by showing up there and serving. A little bit of a heavy thing, isn't it? Well, and it's easy to get this image wrong, but it's also easy to correct. Okay, I'm going to go a little deeper into the, into the, into the Last Supper. Because Judas, Judas is eventually directly confronted by Jesus. The two men just get together and, and um, about his impending betrayal, and Christ confronts him. Now, at that point, according to the scripture, Satan enters Judas. Um, and what I believe, this is demonstrating that Judas trusted or believed in Satan rather than Jesus. That's when this happened. I contend he never was a believer. You know, that probably could have happened. He could have at that moment said, okay, Lord, yeah, it is me. I have done all these things. You know, maybe we better get out of town. But that wasn't the plan. Um, and Judas made, that, made a decision at that point that he was going to, he was, like I say, I don't, I don't think he was ever a believer. Now, there are two things here that help me to understand this passage. You know, I could be wrong about these, but... Um, Again, I think it's helpful because I think there's something subtly going on here that illuminates better why Paul was using this passage to confront the Corinthian church. First, Jesus recognizes that Judas had chosen a different master, and he releases Judas from his own care. He says, okay, what you do, do it quickly. No, Judas, if that's really what you want to do, go ahead and go do it right away. I think if Judas had understand what he was being told, it would have been the most frightening thing he had ever heard. You know, sometimes, 
The saying is, if you want to really get revenge on somebody, that's not what Jesus is doing, but if you want to really get somebody, let them have exactly what they want. Let them completely self-determine. Let them be completely independent. Because we often don't make the right choices, do we? And that's what Jesus did. He says, okay, I release you from my care. In that moment, Judas was judged. I don't see this really any different than uh, the... Uh, the final judgment at the end of the day, when we all end the end of the age, when we all stand, all of humanity stands before God Himself, the Christ, the Judge, sitting on the great right throne in heaven, where He says to this half of the room, or well, actually probably less than half, He says to this portion, "Okay, you wanted to be with me, I'm going to grant you your wish." And to these on this side, He says, "Well, you didn't want me to, you didn't want to be with me." I'm granting your wish as well. I think Jesus at this moment pronounced judgment on Judas. I think the second thing to see here is that Judas is now identified with Satan instead of Jesus. By releasing Judas to identify with Jesus, or, uh, by releasing Judas to identify with Satan, Jesus does not have to partake in his own betrayal through Judas. Remember I said we dragged Jesus near our sins? Oh, Judas, you're released. Judas could do, do what he do, do what he's going to do, and betray Jesus, and Jesus didn't have to be part of that. In fact, the scriptures even says that. Christ cannot deny himself. He cannot betray himself. This gives me great comfort. This gives me great comfort. Christ is in me and he says he will not leave. How could he ever condemn me to hell if he's in me? Because he'd be condemning himself. See how comforting that is? And the flip side of it is, if, hypothetically, Christ is not in me, how could I ever be saved by his blood? If he hadn't identified me, I could not be saved. That's the, that's the great thing. Because he identified with me, because I am crucified in Christ, and Christ is in me, I get salvation, and it can't be taken away. Because Jesus would have to condemn himself. Anyway, um, take that for what it's worth. But this is it. I'm in Christ, Christ is in me, and that is the way it always will be. I just take great comfort in that. Now, Paul has a very simple solution for the church. He addresses the inside of the, of the believers. He addresses the heart, and then he, he addresses the behavior. The heart issue is they were celebrating communion in an unworthy manner. We talked about that. Each individual needs to examine themselves. That's what he says you need to do. You need to self-examine. That's something we do as individuals. We do it here at Taproot during, our, during the music at the last time where we give people the opportunity during the singing to just be quiet and examine their own hearts. Look at your motives. Look at your actions. Bring them to the cross. That's, that's what that's for. Both introspection of motive and review of actions. Failure to do so incurs discipline or judgment, and we've talked about what that means from the Lord. And the result, in some, according to Paul, at the Church of Corinth, is sickness 
and death for some. So it's important. It's important. Self-examination is to judge oneself by the truth, according to the Bible. Now, the degree that I have presented the truth, that's what you're accountable to. If I said something here that's untrue and you can examine your Bibles and decide whether or not what I've said is accurate, you're not accountable for that. But what I've portrayed this morning and what we portray each Sunday morning from the pulpit, if it's according to the scriptures, that is what you're accountable for that morning because God brought us all here together and he presented this word. He is making us all accountable to it. Now, I want to talk a little bit about this phrase in verse 29, discerning the body. Now, I, find, I found in my research a number of different ways that this is interpreted. I finally settled on one of them, again, because I think it fits into this whole concept of, that I think Paul is trying to do by introducing communion. Sin is not just about what I do with my body, as if it only involves me. It's also about what I do with Jesus' body. Now, Jesus does not own my body like I own a car. Jesus, um, he identifies and lives in my body. Thus, I can force him to be an unwilling partner in my sin. During communion, I ask this question. What sin have I dragged Jesus into? What's a little bit different flavor on on that moment. It's another way of self-examination. Another question to ask is, what is the image I bear when I sin? These are great questions. We are to discern not only just our own body, but our body with Jesus in it. Self-identification is needed, or I'm sorry, self-examination is needed to correct the believer on the inside. Now, so Paul just addresses that. He doesn't specifically address classism and, um, uh, you know, and those things I mentioned earlier. He gets back to the real issue, which is you need to self-examine yourself and ask, is this the image that God wants me to portray? Then, okay, so you dealt with the heart issue. Now he's got two behavioral suggestions that he makes. They're simple and gracious. Okay, you Corinthians, um, why don't those of you that come early just wait until everybody else gets there before you start eating? That's simple. Well, we get hungry. Okay, well, eat at home. <laughs> and then when you come, you're not hungry, and you can wait. It was a simple matter of just waiting for the other believers, and that solved the problem. So how does this apply to us? Well, we typically don't have a meal here on Sunday morning, so um, there's no need to wait for that. And in fact, we really don't have a famine that we're facing in, in this area, at least not in food. At least not when it regards to food. We have plenty of food. Now, not that there are not to say that it's everybody's fed and activities that we do to feed the homeless and stuff like that. Those are all things that are good and need to continue because there are individuals that are hungry. But we don't have a, a region-wide famine that we face as a church, at least in food. 
I contend, and this is something to consider, that there is a famine in America. It's just not for food, but for friendship, for relationships. That's where the pain is. That's where the starving is going on. You know, I, I, I got this from uh, back in November and December. Uh, I would listen to a radio while I was out working in my shop. And there was a, one of the homeless shelters in the area was, brought, was putting a message out on the radio, an advertisement, uh, trying to basically solicit people for money and for help to help the homeless during the time, uh, during the time of, of, of Christmas. And, I mean, that's fine. It was... It was um, and it was a well-done ad, but the, 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 um, the ad said something that I thought was very interesting. I hadn't thought of this before. He said, with the homeless, it's not a lack of resources. It's a lack of relationships. Not a lack of resources. You know, and a lot of people will tell you that there is enough food around if you can just get it. And, and the homeless, most of the homeless figure out a way to get food. It's not... The resources that are the problem, that's the symptom. The source is a, is a problem of relationships. Now, I work over here at our new building during the week. I'm there oftentimes, and there's lots of times homeless that I encounter uh, in the back parking lot, particularly. And oftentimes, I'll stop and talk to them and give them a little chance to tell their story, introduce myself, you know, just talk to them. And I would attest simply what I've experienced, that relationships are often a reason that they're homeless or a big factor in it. Not all of them, but you talk to them and you realize pretty soon this person would be hard to live with. This person would be difficult to employ. Well, if you have, if you have problems with relationships, you're going to have a problem holding a job. And you're going to have a problem finding someone to live with. You're going to have to live on your own. If you can't afford that, you're on the street. This is symptomatic, I think, of the famine we have in this culture of relationships. And think about not just the homeless, as America, as Americans in this culture. We have broken marriages, we have broken homes, we've extended families with strife and division, we have political divisions, and this is huge. We have racial divisions, we have gender divisions. I think a lot of this is because as a culture we are drunk on individualism and self-determination. Now those aren't bad things in moderation, but in this culture that's everything. Who I am, what I self-determine to be, that's everything. And we do that at the expense of relationships. Our culture is starving for genuine relationships. Ben, you can go ahead and come up now. Technology, you know, your phone, it allows us to connect or shun anyone with the simple press of a finger. Not that I'm against technology, but how we use it. We connect up so easily, we disconnect so easily. And these are people that many of them we will never know or experience in person. You, you know, we connect with people, you will never shake their hand. You will never look in their eye in another room. So relationships, um, well, they're cheap and shallow. And it's, and it's endemic. It's pandemic. Now the church, we're a little different. We have relationships that, 
we hope, and we try, are centered more on Christ. We actually have a wealth in that area. Hard to believe, but we do. I know all of us struggle with relationships, but we have got Jesus, and as we struggle to bring Jesus into those relationships, we actually have wealth compared to most people out in the culture. So the question is, um, do we, what do we do what do we do with the people we encounter that are starved? So what we're going to do this morning, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to do this. We're going to have communion. We're going to self-examine. And I've got some questions that I want you to ponder during this time. This is going to be just some quiet music. Um, I'd like you all to go ahead and stand. So just some questions for self-examination. At Taproot, are we connecting with people that we don't know? Or are we connecting again with people that we like and who like us and who are like us? There's nothing wrong with that. We can do that all week long. And we have them on our phones. But for people that come that are new, that we don't know, we don't have connections with, do we take that time to just connect with them? Or is this just a time when Another time to hang out with friends. Is this something special when we come together? The other question is, do you have some, some other issue that the Lord has been speaking to you about? Maybe it's not about what I've talked about this morning. But you know, God has been speaking to you on this. Is this something you need to confess? And here's the questions to do during this time of, as we just listen to a little quiet music. What is the image I proclaim with this sin, with this disobedience? Lord, is it I? Is what Jim is talking about this morning, is what the Bible is talking about this morning, is this me? And what sin have I dragged us into? So we're just going to allow you a few minutes to, in the privateness of, private, privateness of your own hearts, consider what God is speaking to you on. And then when we're done, we'll sing a few songs and we will actually take the bread and the wine and have communion. Thank you.